Welcome to Epidemiology Now. My name is Eun Young Lee. Epidemiology Now is a podcast prepared for students in Health 323 Introduction to Epidemiology at Queen's University. This is to note that Dr. Riazi uses presentation slides in her discussion that are posted on OnQ. First, between 18 minutes 40 second point to 30 minute point, where she speaks to the knowledge translation product that came out of her epidemiological research project. Then, between 31 minute 33 second and 33 minute 32 second, where she refers to the socio-ecological framework. Therefore, you will get the most comprehensive information by watching the video uploaded on YouTube. If you prefer listening to this podcast, please refer to the slides posted on OnCube. Additional note to Health323 students, this talk is highly relevant to assignment number four and assignment number 10. Thank you. Today we have Dr. Negin Riazi as a speaker today. Um, so she will be giving us a talk about population health and we're going to have just casual conversation about it. Um, she's, she recently uh, obtained her PhD degree at the University of British Columbia and starting in February, um, she will be working as a postdoc at Brock University. So welcome Dr. Um, Negin Riaji, and I'm excited to have a um, conversation with you about population health today. Well, thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah. yeah, thanks for coming in. So do you want to introduce yourself in a way that you like to our students? Um, yeah, so hi everyone. Um, as Young said, I recently completed my uh, doctorate at the School of Kinesiology at UBC. Um, just really briefly, um, some interests. I love coffee. Um, I'm a nature enthusiast and, you know, living in British Columbia, we have access, you know, to the water and the mountains, which is great. Granted in COVID, that's been a little limited. Um, and yeah, I'm an avid podcast listener. So if you're looking for some new podcasts, I would highly recommend 99% Invisible and Freakonomics, which are fantastic. Nice. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm happy to hear that you like coffee because that's one of my favorite food. I would say food. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so can you uh, tell us a little bit about your disciplinary perspective and your training and also your mm -hmm. research interest before we get into the topic? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, my undergrad was um, in exercise biology at UC Davis. Um, and once I finished that, I uh, decided to go pursue my master's um, at Chico State University um, in California. And that was in kinesiology. And my focus was pedagogy. So I did actually uh, quite a bit of work working with uh, physical education classes, looking at goal setting um, in secondary uh, school students. Um, and for my PhD, I really, you know, I loved British Columbia. I loved Vancouver. So um, I came here to UBC um, and completed my program in um, the population health lab under uh, the supervision of Dr. Guy Faulkner. Um, and just to tell you a little bit about our uh, lab's research, we kind of focus on two interrelated uh, themes. So we look at the development and evaluation of physical activity and interventions. So like, for example, like what factors cause or prevent physical activity or inactivity and sedentary behavior. 
as well, we examine um, how participation in physical activity influences mental health. So physical activity and mental health are, are two big areas of research. Um, and we also focus on how effective like population level physical activity initiatives are designed, how they're delivered and how they're disseminated. So kind of getting into the knowledge translation piece of it as well. Nice. So yeah, um, I guess a little bit about my research. Um, <laughs> my research really focuses broadly on children's physical activity and the promotion of children's physical activity. So I focus on the first part, which my dissertation was really based on was uh, children's independent mobility. So this refers to um, a child's freedom to travel and play within their neighborhood or city without parental supervision. So something that we don't see a lot today, but was very prevalent a couple generations ago. And I also look at population level physical activity initiatives and policy level interventions. So I've done a bit of work with uh, the Canadian 24 hour movement guidelines for children and youth, as well as the early years. Um, yeah, so a lot of the projects I've been involved with um, focus on children's independent mobility, like active transportation and outdoor play. Um, I guess one of my other big interest is in knowledge translation. And I have been involved in a couple knowledge translation projects. So for example, we did some um, work with the Canadian 24 hour movement guidelines, translating the early year ones into like a small animated video for dissemination. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what else. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's awesome. It, it sounds like you have a really focused research interest in, you know, overall physical activity um, and, you know, independent mo mobility among children, uh, but also uh, by listening to what, what you have done throughout your PhD program, it looks like you have a breadth of knowledge in in related to to physical activity promotion and also population health. So mm -hmm. um, it's really I'm I'm getting more excited to to uh, for this interview and um, yeah. So um, let's get to the next question. So sure. to you, what is population health? Yeah. So you know epidemiology really looks at how disease is distributed within a population, right? And the factors that influence that distribution. So to me, like a population health approach is really an approach to health that aims to improve the health of the entire population. Um, and the research that's done in population health is often interdisciplinary. So you are really thinking about, you know, working with multiple different sectors. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, for example, kinesiology, or mm -hmm. it's not just public health, but you could be working with um, individuals who, um, for example, are policymakers or are in built environment and mm -hmm. can affect the environment in which, for example, a person lives. Mm -hmm. um, and it really like population health really focuses on health outcomes of a group of individuals rather than looking, for example, at a single individual. Right. Um, 
you know, like a doctor may see a single individual as a patient and treat them um, and try to improve their health versus much of the research that we do is kind of taking a broad look at what are factors that could affect a large number of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, like a population um, is defined by certain inclusion and exclusion criteria. So much of the research that I do, the population I focus on is often children and youth. And so I typically define that by a certain age range. So looking, for example, at elementary school students or children in the eight to 12 age range. So Mm -hmm. each researcher will have a different population that they're focusing on, Mm -hmm. um, but you define that. And, but it's thinking beyond just the single individual and looking at, you know, a broad number of people. Right. So instead of focusing individual, when we think about health promotion, population health approach is to think about uh, population or a group of individuals uh, when, when they strategize and when they plan for um, health promotion and, and uh, health care. Exactly. And I mean, I I would say like, for example, you might do um, a research study where, you know, your sample might be like 100 people, but Mm -hmm. maybe 100 people of like a representative sample. So you're looking at different SES, different, you know, um, race and ethnicity variables, that kind of thing. Um, So maybe your findings are then generalizable to a larger population across Canada, for example. Mm -hmm. So um, I think going in with a mindset of like, how do we target the wider population? So adapting to a wide array of settings. So what's the context that individuals live in? Mm -hmm. Um, Thinking about disseminating the findings. So how do we, once we have the research, how do we distribute those findings to the population? Mm-hmm. Um, also about implementation so that that's basically the process of putting these findings or decisions into effect. Um, so how do we implement those findings, whether that's an intervention, like a policy, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, I think the other big part is surveillance. So are people, for example, adhering to guidelines? So Canada was one of, was the first country to release Canadian 24-hour movement guidelines. So moving away from separate guidelines for physical activity, sedentary behavior, that kind Mm -hmm. of, and sleep to like a more um, holistic approach to guidelines. So Mm -hmm. that basically what's coming across is that, um, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep, you might not have the energy to be physically active. If you're on Mm -hmm. your screen a lot, that might affect your sleep and physical activity. So all these different movement behaviors are related. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically thinking like, okay, so you have these new guidelines, are people adhering to the guidelines? Do they understand the guidelines? Um, are whatever resources, initiatives, policies actually working? So the, that final piece I would say is like the surveillance piece. Right, nice. So mm-hmm. so just to summarize, I guess um, population health, the essence of it is that uh, the 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 approach is to, uh, focused on populations, not individuals. And also it requires 
holistic approach where it's just not uh, one aspect of research, but it's surveillance, it's uh, it's development of, for example, 24-hour movement guidelines, public-facing informations for knowledge translation. So um, it sounds like it's the the it touches on the entire process uh, mm-hmm. for health promotion at yeah. the population level. Exactly. Yeah that's, yeah, that's great. Thanks for that, that explanation. It's really clear. Um, so um, now moving on to the next question. Um, I, I know that you are in this population health field for a long time, and you just gave us a description of what population health means. But do you have any other examples um, or the research exhibit that, that you want to share with our students? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about um, some of the stud- like types of study designs that I've used and whatnot, mm-hmm. and then I'll jump into the research exhibit. Um, good. So I believe later in the course, you'll be covering like different study designs, right? Yeah. Um, so I'll briefly touch talking about literature reviews, like systematic reviews and cross-sectional studies, because that's, yeah. that's what I've used. Yeah. Um, so often when we are starting a new study or like new research, we'll go about doing a search of the literature first to Mm -hmm. see what has been done so far and where the gaps in the literature are. So so that we're not like repeating research Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we're looking to fill those gaps in the research. So, you know, no one's done whatever study this is or hasn't looked at this population or hasn't looked at this context or setting, that's what we want to fill so that we have a better understanding about whatever topic it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think literature reviews and systematic reviews are like a crucial part of the research process because Mm -hmm. what they do is they really synthesize and bring together what has been done and it shows where those gaps are. Additionally, um, some of the work I've done is working in cross-sectional studies, which really provide kind of like a snapshot of Mm -hmm. what conditions are at the time of examination. They're not longitudinal. They're not over time. They're, for example, you send out a questionnaire, someone answers it. And at that time, for example, they're getting this much sleep, this much physical activity, you know, this much screen time. So we know that at that point in time, but what's really good about cross-sectional studies is that they're really useful in determining if associations exist between independent and outcome variables. So Mm -hmm. what factors are influencing your outcome variable? Um, And they're also really helpful for population level kind of research because you can do them and you can you know, do it with a large population. So I consider myself actually a qualitative researcher. So I do a lot of focus groups and interviews. And there is so much data that comes out of that. Granted, it's fantastic. And it's very rich data. But the fact is, you can't really do a 1000 2000 people like interviews Mm -hmm. with them to you know, get these transcribed verbatim and to analyze them. It's a lot of data. But with a cross-sectional study design where you're sending out like a survey to 2,000 people, mm-hmm. you can collect that data and analyze it quite easily. And you get mm-hmm. a lot of information. So especially for, you know, population level initiatives and research, this is great. Um, I guess 
the other thing would be to think um, like quantitative methods are just, they're quite useful because it allows researchers to really study the large population. They can mm-hmm. test and validate like existing theories. Um, and you can, you know, because you have such a large sample, you can potentially generalize those findings to the broader population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for the description. Just now you've touched on all the important, like most <laughs> of the important topics in this course. So it's awesome. There's a link obviously in um, across topics, right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. and as you said, with um, qualitative research, of course, um, there's a value associated with qualitative research that quantitative research cannot fill in. But quantitative research like cross-sectional studies, you can collect data that could be generalizable in a broader population. So that's one of the benefits of using uh, population-based sample for population health research mm-hmm. using the cross-sectional research design. And also we can use um, other study designs as well, like cohort studies or so longitudinal uh, prospective retrospective case control, um, there's RCT and there's community trials. So there are other study designs that can be used in population health. But mm-hmm. when we think about convenience and cost-effectiveness, cross-sectional study design uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, thanks for that. Um, so yeah, you've give, given us a really good uh, information that we can take on, but do you want to, but now, um, do you want to give us more concrete examples of what population health research looks like? Yeah, sure. Um, so I will actually talk about some of the research that I've done for my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I have like two research exhibits because they all came about from the research that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll talk about um, a documentary that we made. Mm -hmm. Um, as well as um, an article that we wrote for The Conversation, which is kind of like an online news news website, but it's written by academics. So like if you have a master's, a PhD, that kind of thing, um, Mm -hmm. you are the writer. So you you really provide like evidence-based or research-based findings in a way that is very tangible for the general population. So mm-hmm. let me let me just get this, um, let me just share my screen with you. Sounds good. Fantastic, okay. So just to define KT, KT um, I means knowledge translation. Um, so when I'm writing KT project, this is basically the result of what came out of the research that we did. So everything that I just spoke about, this is what I did for my dissertation. So one of the first um, things that I did was a systematic review. Again, so this was a synthesis of the literature and we were looking at examining correlates of uh, children's independent mobility. So the factors that influence independent mobility. And I took a social ecological approach. I'll talk about that a little bit later, but basically I was not just looking at individual level factors. I was looking at, you know, um, the interpersonal um, level, social level, built environment, 
Um, and basically what we found, we included 43 articles after, you know, doing all these database searches and narrowing it down um, based on a set of inclusion and exclusion criteria. What we found overall was that there are significant correlates, so significant factors at every single level of the social ecological framework that influence children's independent mobility. So this goes back to the idea that you need multi-sectors when you and multi-levels need to be addressed if you if you're thinking about like trying to promote independent mobility or create interventions that affect independent mobility. Um, I guess the next one, we did um, a cross-sectional study. So this was, um, it was part of a larger study called the Active Transportation Independent Mobility Study, so ATIM. Um, it was a multi-site study. So we um, were based in Vancouver, Ottawa, and Trois-Rivières. Um, and we were looking at children within the eight to 12 um, year age range um, and their parents. And so when, when we did the sampling for the study, we looked at um, varying sites. So as I said, those three sites, um, we looked at different urbanizations. So looking at urban, suburban, and rural, rural environments, and as well as varying the socioeconomic status. So looking at high and low SES. So what we ended up with after, um, you know, it took, I think, almost a year of recruitment throughout the year and whatnot, um, but we ended up with 37 primary schools and nearly 1,700 participants. Um, and oops, there we go. So what we found again was that there were differences um, with regard to you know, factors. And these factors were significant again at every level. So children's age, children's gender, um, looking at um, you know, how parents travel to work or um, parent gender also affected it. Um, but what we found, like the biggest finding was that where a child lives matters. Um, basically, overall, children across the three regions that we looked at had very low independent mobility. So on a scale of one to six on independent mobility index, basically, the average was like two point one, seven or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But it was in the two range. So very, very low. But what we did see was that children in Vancouver and Ottawa had less independent mobility than children in Trois-Rivières. So whether that has to do with the size of the city, um, mm -hmm. you know, like population density, whether that is, that could be a cultural factor, um, you know, there are differences there. And the other important fact that we saw was that regardless of where a child lives, the perceptions of the environment with regard to safety and with regard to concerns around traffic and stranger danger and crime, these mm -hmm. were, it was, you know, like across all three regions, these were concerns. And so that really negatively influenced the amount of independent mobility a child had. Mm -hmm. So basically we did these two studies. I'm not going to talk about my qualitative study, but that I did a qualitative study after this focusing on uh, Vancouver, the greater Vancouver area and talking to families about, um, you know, their, you know, parents' independent mobility growing up and what they, you know, what their concerns were about their children's independent mobility um, and looking at how independent mobility was negotiated within families. 
Um, so as I've said, like systematic review, cross-sectional study, qualitative study, and it really provides, they go hand in hand and they all, each of them have their strengths. Um, and I think they provide a much better picture of children's independent mobility. So um, I will just go ahead and after doing <laughs> the systematic re review and the cross-sectional study, we kind of got to the point of like, now what? Like, how do mm -hmm. we disseminate the findings? So mm -hmm. should we do like a podcast? Should we do like an infographic? Should we do an animated video? Um, and what we ended up thinking about is why not do a documentary? Because, you know, then we're showing real families and, you know, um, using the, the findings of the systematic review, you know, so the greater literature, what has already been done, and then what we found in our study. So we created this documentary and we actually had a documentary premiere, I believe, if I remember correctly, September 18th, 2019. Mm. So it's been, it's been out a while, but it was a great opportunity because this allowed us to introduce a documentary to the public. Mm -hmm. And there was a panel discussion with um, a few experts in the areas of risky play, in the uh, area of like families. Um, so the panel discussion also helped us get like, and, you know, get the audience's thoughts on what they thought about it. Um, but also it was an opportunity to not only showcase the findings um, of our research in hopefully a more engaging way than just a journal article, but it was great to also answer questions of like parents and teachers and like even students that had come to this event. Mm -hmm. um, so another thing that came out of this premiere is that they turned that panel discussion with the questions and everything into a podcast as well. So that was another KT product that that came out and can be accessed by, you know, it's free. It's, it can be accessed by pretty much everyone. Um, and I think one of the things with regard to journal articles is that oftentimes, yes, we, we publish them and they're free to access. But, you know, if you're not associated with, for example, like a university, oftentimes, like, you know, an article could be $50, um, maybe even more um, to access, which, you know, that that is a barrier to us disseminating findings to the general public. Mm -hmm. um, so moving on, another thing that we did um, was write an uh, article for the conversation. So this was basically an 1100 word, you know, summary of what we found. So we talked about, you know, anything from, you know, like the COVID-19 pandemic, what that means for children's independent mobility. Um, we gave a bit of findings with regard to what we found from the ATIM study. Um, and then at the bottom, we kind of gave some, you know, recommendations or six steps to helping build your child's independent mobility. So we tried to tailor it to, you know, and, you know, tailor it as well as write and lay language, um, what those findings are. Mm -hmm. And let's see, um, I guess one of the other things I wanted to bring up is that knowledge translation piece, if that's okay? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, so, so knowledge translation, as I said, is basically taking the findings and translating it into 
uh, a format that is accessible to the people um, or the knowledge users, so the people that need it. Um, so in research, we did we identified our problem, our research, the question or whatever purpose it was. We conducted that, and you know we synthesized uh, synthesized synthesize <laughs> oh my goodness gracious oh yeah <laughs> um you know the literature got you know found those research gaps and we adapted our knowledge to you know the context so who was our audience um what was the medium that we were delivering and who were the messengers so for example our audience for a lot of independent mobility research is you know parents because parents are oftentimes the gatekeepers of you know, um, to their children's, mm -hmm. and they have such a big influence on what children can or cannot do, and whether mm -hmm. or not they promote physical activity, whether or not they promote independent mobility. And then we chose our medium. So we did like a documentary, we did that podcast, we did, um, you know, the, the article. And, you know, then also thinking about your messengers. So who is helping spread the word? Is it like, you know, a public public health agency of Canada? Is it like a government, you know, um, entity? Is it, you know, early childhood educators? Is it teachers? So thinking about who you can partner with to really get that message out there. Um, and then implementing that KT product and tool. So going mm -hmm. back to what I was talking about a little bit earlier, um, is talking about like evaluation and surveillance. So mm -hmm. monitoring that knowledge usage and evaluating the outcomes. So like, is the KT project, um, product, tool, whatever you create it, is it actually working? So one of the things that we did, because, you know, this went out to the population, we wanted to see like, did it make, does this documentary even do anything? Mm -hmm. So what we did was we created a short questionnaire and so like the, the documentaries on YouTube underneath it, we have like a link to a questionnaire, which basically gets at, did, you know, did you learn something new? Do you, did you even know about independent mobility before this? But kind of trying to get at like awareness, did, was this product effective? Um, did we raise awareness? And of course, you know, we have YouTube analytics. So like you get quite a number of like the views, you know, what countries they were from and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So that was very, very helpful. Um, additionally, for the conversation article, we had, um, you know, the conversation itself provides a platform for authors to see how many, you know, views you get. So I think recently this says like the article had 10,398 readers, um, wow. like it was shared on Twitter. And, you know, obviously other articles may have done better, but like, Considering the fact that if, you know, our, our journal article on the ATIM study probably does not have this many views. <laughs> so it's, it's really, I think, helpful to think about, like, how to get your message out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thanks for sharing this. It's amazing. And you've touched on so many important topics that will be covered or that has been covered in this course. Um, so it's awesome that we can have that link uh, between your interview and others' interviews. Um, so I guess population health is not just researching, doing, conducting a research with, on the population. It's about how you translate that knowledge into 
um, the population that you're serving? I, you know, I don't know if everyone would agree with me, but I think it is extremely important, even mm-hmm. as a as a researcher, especially mm-hmm. that you are thinking past just doing the research and publishing the findings in a journal. Because mm-hmm. in reality, the number, you know, academia or researchers is a very small population, and they are the ones who have access to it. So I think it's really important to think beyond that and think, okay, so you found all this information about physical activity or, you know, independent mobility, but who needs it? Like, Mm -hmm. what can teachers do? What can parents do? And how can we, you know, even creating, like, you don't have to go and create a documentary. You can create like an infographic that Mm -hmm. like really simplifies the process of how all this works, the interconnections between all these different levels. Um, so I do a lot of work with this social ecological framework. Mm -hmm. So basically what this framework does is it emphasizes the dynamic interplay between these multiple spheres of influence. Going back to what I was taught, like children's independent mobility, you have these individual factors, you know, Mm -hmm. like children's age. So the older a child is, the more independent mobility they have. Um, Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, boys have greater independent mobility than girls, like moving on to the built environment. um, For example, does the child's neighborhood have sidewalks? Does it have proper lighting? Um, Does it have traffic calm areas? Um, Additionally, like policy environment. So are there policies to support the movement behavior, whatever it is, it could be physical activity, um, you know, whatnot. But like, for example, in Utah, they Mm -hmm. actually a couple years ago, I think it was 2018, they passed a free range parenting law. So what they did was they actually went in, it's not a new law, they just changed the definition of neglect, so that parents couldn't get in trouble for letting their kids go out independently to play or to travel. So like in the past, that could have been considered neglect. So the Mm -hmm. policy is now supportive of these behaviors. So if you're looking at population level you know, affecting the population level, you also have to consider the context in which, um, you know, people are living, where children are living. Um, And to realize that it's not just all about the individual, a lot of like health promotion in the past used to be centered on what can the individual do. But Mm -hmm. it's really important to also consider, well, the environment really (laughs) impacts, you know, and the social norms And, you know, the policies, they all impact that behavior. So I think it's really important to also consider that as well. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really good that you brought it up because social socioecological modeling is, it's um, a popular modeling. And also I use that in my research all the Mm -hmm. time. So when we think about, you know, for example, promoting physical activity, it's just not about one level of effort that will make the change. It's the multi, like you said, multi-sectoral, multi-level, um, comprehensive and holistic efforts that could uh, reach, that could help us to reach the goal of promoting health, population health, promoting physical activity at the population level, etc. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's great. Um, so um, again, I've I would like to say you've touched on so many important issues and you've touched on so many topics that we're going to talk about in this course, the key topics. So I really appreciate it. Um, Is there anything 
that you want to say to our students to enlighten them? Enlighten. Uh, <laughs> so or that's just, a hard one. Yeah, or, or just something that you want to say. I guess um, what I'd like to end with is like, I want to challenge the students. So those of you listening to think past just publishing in journal articles or just doing research and just ending it there. But to really think about how to get that information into the hands of individuals who actually need it. Mm -hmm. Um, And additionally, to think outside the box. For Mm -hmm. example, a journal article might be perfect but for example, an infographic might be perfect for the population you're thinking of. So mm-hmm. think about your knowledge user and think about what works for them. So whether, you know, for example, if you're targeting new parents, there are so many mom groups, there are so many apps, you know, like, you know, design things that are relevant to the population that you are looking at. And I think that's really important um, when you're thinking about population health and applying research to that population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. So the final assignment for, for the students in this course will be developing an infographic based on an epidemiological awesome. study. So yeah, yeah, it, it looks like you know the course. <laughs> <laughs> no, that'll be fun. It's always, yeah. it's good to be creative and to, you know, try a different format than what you're used to, for sure. Yeah, and thanks for sharing all the resources, the documentary and the conversation article. Our students will be uh, reading and watching those resources. Um, So I really appreciate sharing those resources and your knowledge today. And yeah, thank you so much. Uh, No problem at all. Thank you very much for having me. Bye, everyone. Thanks.